Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser. I'm professor of history and chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Documents in Detail, Teaching American History's webinar series in which we bring together thoughtful scholars to have a conversation about historically significant documents. We encourage all of you joining us tonight to participate in that conversation by submitting questions via the Q&A box, please not the chat box so I don't have to monitor two different things at once. We will try to get to as many of those questions as possible. Within the next week, you'll receive an email which will contain links for further reading on this topic, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from tonight's program. The speeches, letters, and other writings that we're using for this year's webinars are all drawn from the various volumes in our core documents series. These documents are also available at the Teaching American History website. It possesses a truly voluminous document database at tah.org. The subject of our program tonight comes from this volume, the volume on Abraham Lincoln, it's edited by Joe Fornieri and David Tucker. The document we'll be discussing is uh, Lincoln's 1861 Fragment on the Constitution and Union. And to help discuss it are the editors themselves. Joe Fornieri is Professor of Political Science at the Rochester Institute of Technology, while David Tucker is Senior Fellow at the Ashbrook Center. We are also glad to have with us tonight Susan Hansen, who is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Dallas. All three of these scholars are also faculty members in Ashland University's master's program in American history and government. Welcome to all three of you. Glad you can be here with us. Pleasure to be here. Hi, John. So as I, uh, I generally begin these by asking... Uh, in particular, the editors, but uh, I'd, I'd welcome uh, Susan's thoughts as well. Uh, obviously, Lincoln wrote a tremendous amount, and there was only so much space in this uh, in this core documents volume. What qualifies this to, for inclusion? You want to start, Joe? Sure. I think that this. Uh, this short um, reflection or meditation really encapsulates Lincoln's political thought. And uh, I, I see Lincoln as a, as a philosopher, statesman, <clears throat> who um, really combined greatness of both theory and practice. And by, and by theory, his his understanding and ability to articulate core principles and move the country towards, you know, closer to the, the principles contained in the Declaration of Independence. And of course, by practice, I meant his, his, his ability to harmonize those principles under the circumstances. And we see uh, a very uh, clear vision of the American dream here and the relationship between the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and the Union, all encapsulated in just a few paragraphs. So it it really provides a, a, a terse window, a very clear window into, into Lincoln's uh, political thought. 
I, I would just add that uh, this, the Lincoln volume that you showed, John, is unusual in that it's the only volume, the selection of the documents for which was done by a committee. So I hope this disproves, the, you know, the claim that committees can't produce good work. Um, all the people in the MAG program who teach the Lincoln course, Joe is one of them. Uh, I don't think Susan has done that yet, but but uh, Joe is one of them. Uh, were asked to recommend documents. And this was one that got unanimous uh, consent right from the beginning. So I think it's recognized by people who study Lincoln for the qualities Joe just described. And I think it has historic interest in two in two ways. One is um, the possibility that it was written during the secession winter um, when we uh, don't have any public comment from Lincoln between um, the secession of the Deep South um, seven states um, and his inauguration um, at a, a moment when he was invited by Alexander Stevens, who he had known earlier um, in the House of Representatives. Um, so from the, the vice president of the Confederacy, um, of course, the Confederacy had seceded and had a constitutional convention and um, elected a president, a vice president, all before Lincoln shows up in Washington, D.C. And Alexander Stevens in, invites Lincoln to speak the, the word fitly spoken, right, um, at, the, at the proper time um, in order to avert um, the Civil War. And so, historically speaking, this is um, a potentially um, very interesting reflection by Lincoln at that moment. Um, we don't actually know for sure when he wrote it. Um, it's speculative um, that because he's um, using a phrase that um, Alexander Stevens used, used in his letter that um, it was written um, at that time in December, January of um, December of, of 1860, January of 1861. So if it is, then it's a, it's a very interesting um, little piece of reflection um, at a crucial moment in American history. The other uh, possible way that it's interesting is that um, there, are, there are important links um, forward and back, you know, from this little fragment back to the Peoria Address when Lincoln comes raging back into politics after his retirement in response to the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the, the repeal of the Missouri Compromise, and then forward um, to his reflections um, on the Gettysburg Address in, sorry, on the Declaration of Independence in the Gettysburg Address. So um, if it is, in fact, um, written in that secession winter, that's that would be fascinating in and of itself. Um, even if it's not, it, it links in interesting ways forward and back to two other crucial moments in Lincoln's intellectual trajectory. Well, I would I would love to hear more about uh, about the connections to those other speeches in terms of context. That's really interesting. So we don't even we don't even know for sure that it was meant as as an early draft of a response to Stevens, which he decided not to set, to send. This is literally Nicolay and Hay going through his papers after his death finding this, wow, there's this little note here written on, scrawled on a piece of paper, no date or anything. And it's simply surmised that, uh, that because of this word, a word fitly, this, this phrase, a word fitly spoken, which Stevens used, that this was a response to him. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's possible. So Lincoln has his two personal secretaries, um, 
who both are involved in biographical work, you know, after um, his assassination. Um, and, you know, so I, I think that they kind of contribute to that speculation about how to place, how to date um, these different fragments that they found in his personal papers. Mm. But of course, we're always interested in personal papers uh, because we always feel like somehow if it's, if it hasn't been published and it's, but it's been preserved in his personal papers, that it's kind of the inside scoop, um, that it gives you somehow access to Lincoln's thought process, um, Lincoln mulling something over for his own benefit um, and not just for rhetorical purposes. Um, and so, you know, it has that feel of immediacy and, and intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so it, it seems to have some value um, in, in that sense as well. Lincoln would write these these memos and these these reflections, these memoranda down. Note uh, to self. On scrap, on scrap paper, right? And, and he literally put many of them in his top hat. Or, or in his desk, and so they're discovered afterwards. And as Susan said, they give us kind of an indication of his thought uh, processes. One of the one of the real, very famous and moving um, uh, meditations found was the meditation on the divine will, which which is very consistent with the second inaugural address, where he he reflects on providence. Um, in, uh, in in the suffering of the war, I think any any student of the Civil War, American history, you know, has to ask the question: What you know, when Lincoln claimed that he was preserving the Union, what did that Union stand for? What did that Union mean? And here we find a clear answer to that question. Right, the the, the Union is more than simply territorial integrity or even national existence. It's it's dedicated to an idea. Right, it's the the union is the apple of gold, the great metaphor, uh, and 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 that apple is is enshrined by the picture of silver, which he likens to the Constitution and and statesmanship and again both uh, guiding principles and the consideration of principles like equality and liberty and some normative view of how things ought to be balanced within. The, if you will, the framework uh, of the rule of law and the Constitution. And what I find very interesting about this is there's a there's a deeper uh, understanding of how the Constitution is that framework is the is the is the picture of silver um, inc- is incorporated by the Declaration of Independence, and that was Republican doctrine. Right, the Republicans, Doug, Frederick Douglass is even more radical on this, but the Republicans believed that the Constitution itself incorporated the principles of of the Declaration of Independence, that those directives were contained. They couldn't be realized uh, through force, but the 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 uh, the, the directives, the the norms of the Declaration were embedded in the Constitution through the preamble and the Republican Clause uh, and other other provisions of the Constitution. And and Lincoln makes it clear that that the the picture of silver ministers to the apple of gold, right? That these these principles are more fundamental um, and that the the picture is for uh, the apple of gold, right? 
And I often say, I often kind of tell my students that you could look at the Civil War era and certain alternatives because the abolitionists in some way, William Lloyd Garrison wanted the apple. He wanted the, those those principles and he wanted it to be realized, you know, in, in some utopian heaven on earth. But of course, uh, without the picture of silver and someone like Stephen Douglas, Lincoln's nemesis from Illinois, or uh, even George B. McClellan in the 1864 election um, wanted the, the the picture of silver with no substantive moral principles uh, uh, on the basis of equality and, and liberty and enterprise for all to guide it, you know, um, kind of kind of self contained. Um, so you know, Lincoln Lincoln provides this this understanding of. Uh, of natural right under natural law and balancing um, the directives of of the Declaration of Independence within the framework of the rule of law and its constraints. And that helps make sense out of the letter to Greeley when he says his paramount object is to save the Union. Well, what does it mean to save the Union? It means to preserve this apple of gold. But one more thing. It's it's important to note that for Lincoln and and Dave and, and Susan have both done great jobs in pointing this out in some of Lincoln's earlier speeches. Lincoln realizes that the apple of gold is is vulnerable to being bruised or destroyed without the frame of silver. So as as lofty and as noble as equality are, that they're jeopardized if they're detached from the rule of law, right? Uh, if 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 they're achieved in in an unconstitutional uh, manner that that may prepare the way for despotism, right? Lincoln says that that um, in his Lyceum address he warns of a towering genius who will either emancipate slaves or enslave freemen. So there's 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 this danger, right, of moral idealism of wanting the wanting the apple, okay. Uh, without the picture of silver, you need both, and that's great statesmanship, in my view. He mentions the philosophical cause, even of the union. Yeah, I, I'd like to pick up on something um, that that um, we were talking about before, but then bring it bring it into what Joe was saying. So, I I think some of the value of this particular text um, being a possible window into Lincoln's own personal reflections about these things is there's a real um, there's a real tendency in the study of American history in history in general um, to think that the the point of the exercise uh, the the point of the critical thinking exercise is the debunking um, of these figures and that somehow um, to get closer to them than a marble bust, right? To get closer to them is necessarily to learn about their foibles and their faults. And, um, you know, um, but there's the other direction in terms of trying to get closer to them. And that is trying to get closer to, um, how they developed their thought, how they, um, how, um, you know, they, they grew in their understanding of their own, um, attachment um to america as a as a national project um and and developed in their in their prudent statesmanship um and so i think when 
you know, on, on the one hand, like with George Washington, you can you can get closer to George Washington by, you know, trying to understand, you know, his his personal life, you know, whether it's with with Martha Custis Washington or, you know, understanding his his life on the plantation um, and the his you know relationship to the issue of slavery. But there's always also that mystique of trying to understand um, George Washington's courage at Valley Forge and how he he motivated the men. Um, and, you, you know, you have that that famous um, it's a famous painting, although it's a 20th century painting of of George Washington kneeling in the snow um, at Valley Forge, you know, kind of trying to get closer to that idea of what was motivating them. What um, how did he how did he lift the morale of people? So I think with um, with Lincoln as well, some people try to get away from the marble bust or the the huge you know mammoth statue of Lincoln in the the Lincoln Memorial by trying to get closer to Lincoln by looking at his you know foibles and faults, um, his relationship with his wife, and you know question of whether he, whether he had you know suffered from depression and all these kinds of things. But we also can try to get closer to these historical figures by trying to see how they developed their thought um, and developed not just their mind, but also their heart. Um, and so their, their attachment to, um, to America, uh, patriotic attachment to America. Um, and so I think, um, I think what Joe is saying about, um, about Lincoln's really profound reflection on the relationship between the ends of our political project, um, liberty, justice, um, equality and political processes um, inscribed in the Constitution, and that America is not just the democratic processes, um, but it is also um, some principled ends, um, and that Lincoln Lincoln was always um, balancing on those two feet: um, the rule of law and the the aspirational um, ends of the Union. Um, and he was very. Uh, he was very perceptive about how, you know, the the aspirations, um, if not pursued through the rule of law, could self-destruct. Um, and if you just think that it's all about the process, it's all about the process, um, and it doesn't matter where it's going, um, that, that it, you know, the, the nation would also implode. Um, so I, I think that, that that does help us to get closer to Lincoln, um, closer to Lincoln's inner workings. I, I would like to follow up on that by looking at a couple, a couple of specific lines in the fragment uh, towards the end, where he says the picture was made for the apple, not yeah. the apple for the picture. If that were true, this is to kind of to uh, illustrate, I think, what Joe and Susan are talking about. If that were true, simply, you could get rid of the picture whenever you wanted to because it's the apple that's really important. But in the very next line, this is the passage Joe referred to, Lincoln wrote, so let us act that neither picture or apple shall ever be blurred or bruised or broken. Um, which <clears throat> I don't want to accuse Lincoln of a contradiction, but does seem to contradict what he just said in a way. If you think that the apple is the key thing and the picture is made for it, then you could just discard the picture and put another frame around the apple. Lincoln doesn't seem to think it's that easy. Um, and I think that there's a, I think an important contrast here with Jefferson who, uh, you know, said every 20 years we ought to have a new constitution. 
it, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but it's close enough. That wasn't Lincoln's view, I think. I mean, I think Lincoln believed there, you know, a reverence for the laws. He said, well, it's human dress was important. And I think it's because he, if, if, if Lincoln, if Jefferson had lived through the first, you know, a hundred years of the U.S. Uh, Republic, I, I don't know that he would have said we ought to have a new constitution every 20 years. Because I think Lincoln and other people understood how powerful the idea of human equality was. And in a sense, you could say how dangerous an idea it could be. Um, and and uh, bad things could be done in the name of equality, just as in the name of inequality. And in Lincoln's other speeches, he points to some of those things. Uh, so I think that it's, it's true. And it's kind of, in, you know, in, uh, embedded here in in this fragment, uh, a, a very um, you know careful consideration of the relationship between uh, the Declaration and the Constitution, and you might say moral principle and and legal system. Yeah, um, that those can't can't be separated. Even though one clearly is in service of the other, they can't be separated. I'm uh, I'm curious about. Assuming this is a response to Stevens, um, can can any of you tell me more about what Stevens was looking for? Uh, I mean, I, maybe we, at some point we could we could yeah. speculate. What if Lincoln had sent this as an answer? But Even, I'd like to know more of what of of what uh, what Stevens was trying to get out of Lincoln. Say right. to say something, but presumably he had something in mind. So you you go ahead, Joe. Stevens was, um, I think, the only member of, of the Georgia delegation that that voted against secession, and he was Lincoln's um, colleague in the House of Representatives. They 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 knew each other, um, so I think it it was, uh, you know, an, an opportunity to try and uh, stoke Southern Unionist sentiment. It really <laughs> was not as strong as poor Lincoln thought, or at least it it uh uh if it was there, it wasn't able to overcome the secession uh votes. There's something of a debate. Um uh so yeah, I think he 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 saw this re- this prior relationship with with Stevens and thought that Stevens may have uh, been able to persuade fellow Southerners to remain loyal to the Union because he voted against secession. But of course, we know in retrospect what Stevens Stevens becomes the vice president of the Confederacy and writes the odious, uh, very revealing cornerstone uh, speech that slavery is the cornerstone of of this uh, new Confederacy, which is based on the principle of white supremacy. I I might um, uh, put forward a bit of a jaundiced view of what uh, Stevens was after, um, not with any certainty, uh, speculatively. Um, but Lincoln, in his first inaugural address, refers to agents within the Capitol um, working um, to disband the Union without war, um, and um, of course there are compromise um, movements that are afoot 
um, in December, January, and February before the March inauguration. Um, and uh, Henry Adams, um, the, the son of Charles Francis Adams, does a good job of kind of tracking all of these, um, the, the back and forth with um, Charles Francis Adams and Seward and, you know, uh, the, the different uh, proposals for um, to, to avert a war um, through compromise. And I think that um, there's a there's a possibility that it's a kind of a trap, right, that you're asking Lincoln to give a word of hope to the unionists in the South. And it seems like a prudent idea. Um, but the problem is, is that by raising their hopes, you're also um, you're also suggesting support for the possibility of a compromise. Um, and Lincoln is very prudent in saying nothing until he actually has been inaugurated. Um, I, I think there's, I think there's wisdom in that. Um, you know, he, he does not yet have the reins of power. Um, and a lot could have happened in January and February. Um, so, you know, I, I think, I think that was, that was wise on his part. No, that's a great point. He's got to navigate that Scylla and Charybdis. And we know, again, in retrospect, that privately he repudiates any compromise that would undermine the core principle of the Republican Party on the restriction of, of slavery. He does speak, of course, at Independence Hall, where he says something similar about the uh, the original idea at Trenton and then later at, at uh, Trenton and, and Independence Hall. Uh, he talks about, once again, the Union being uh, grounded upon this original idea of, of equality and liberty and opportunity for all. I like the, let's not forget that, you know, that something is the principle of liberty to all, the principle that clears the path to all, gives hope to all, and by consequence, enterprise and industry to all. This is a war for the American dream, right? You know, I don't know if the term the term's probably no longer in vogue, but I start, certainly am not going to give it up. But this is a, this is a war for equal opportunity. I don't um, know. We know. Uh, it, I'm curious to know more about the state of Lincoln's thoughts during this period. Right, he, he makes no public uh, public statement. Because he's not in charge, and and that that you know, I, I think I'm with Susan there. That that seems like a it seems like a wise move. But what aside from this document, what else is out there that really records what he's thinking about secession? So this might be a, a strange way of starting to answer your question, but uh, this is what really bothers me about the movie Lincoln. Um, um, because I just find the entire frame of the movie is at a straight, strange chronological moment, um, to start a movie and simply entitled Lincoln, um, after 1863, after the Gettysburg address and to not touch at all, um, the secession winter and his decision to accept war, um, when war came is is a kind of bizarre. I mean, I don't think people would have flocked to a movie called the 13th amendment. Um, <laughs> so, you know, or, 
I, I, I still had to call it Lincoln, um, you know, but I think a, a Lincoln movie would have to cover um, a truly Lincoln movie would have to cover Secession Winter. Um, so I, I think that the first inaugural address is the best um, is the best reflection we actually get um, on Lincoln, on the, the constitutionality of secession, um, the wisdom of secession, the necessity of the political necessity of secession, considering what the Republicans um, were in fact um, um, calling for. Um, they were not radical abolitionists. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the, the first inaugural address, you know, really stands as his sort of master statement on secession. I think it's, it's interesting. Susan mentioned this b- before we, we started as we were getting ready that he, that he mentions from the declaration is liberty to all and he connects that to prosperity and susan was pointing to the um, gettysburg address as lincoln they're focusing on equality but if you think of it as a response or a potential response or a, a meditation generated in part by a request for a response it would have been smart to focus on liberty and then prosperity rather than equality, because equality would just point to the pro- the problem that was causing the Civil War, whereas Lincoln, it's almost, he, the, the fragment begins almost in, in the middle, of, well, I mean, it begins sort of in the middle of a reflection, because he says, all this, without really specifying what this is, is not the result of accident. And then you go on, a, a, you know, a sentence or so, and you realize he's talking about our great prosperity. Then he goes to the phrase liberty to all, and he says, This is what inspires people to work. This is what inspires people to to strive to do great things because uh they're they're free to do that and they know that they'll enjoy the fruits of their labor, etc. Obviously not true of slaves, as Lincoln has pointed out in previous speeches. But that's so he's to me, you could say that what if he was thinking about this what could bring Americans together and prevent a separation without surrendering uh, a principle? I mean, not really here talking about the the Republican principle, uh, the principle of the Republican Party that Joe has referred to, but focusing on prosperity. You know, we can we can share that and not focusing on equality because that simply would highlight the the moral issue which the Southerners are so inflamed about, you know, being being um, referred to as, uh, you know, immoral people because they hold slaves. So I think that's, it's interesting how that unfolds and then eventually, again, leads Lincoln back to the, the, that phrase from the Declaration, then he, then he brings up in the next paragraph the Declaration, and then he comes to that, that uh, great conclusion that we talked about previously of the Declaration as the apple and the Constitution is the frame of silver, and then, kind of, you know, in a surprising way, you might say, says you can't separate these two. It's not like he's almost saying, if you look, if you take the frame off the Mona Lisa, that's not going to be a big, a big issue, right? But as long as you don't damage the painting. But if you somehow, if you take the frame off uh, the the Declaration, then well, that that's not a good thing. Um, so I think there's a it's a, it's a, it is a document very it's very short but i think it's it's very interesting how it holds together and how that you can see the logic in lincoln's mind 
unfolding, so to speak, in this few few paragraphs. Dave, I love how you said that the the first sentence is all this is not the result of accident, and you're immediately so all what right? Yeah. And you you feel you feel cheated, <laughs> right? Uh, what was what was what was before this? If there was anything, it's that's just a great <laughs> point. It, it's it's uh, tantalizing. And of course, I'm interested in the, the whole the, this this notion. There's a philosophical cause, right? That this isn't accident. There's, if you will, a final cause or a formal cause or even an efficient cause that that um, gu- guides the union, right? It, it it is constituted by this. Uh, that is part of its its very form and essence. In end, it's all um, uh, part of it, um, in, inseparable to at least this vision of of the union. How many, you know, how many leaders speak in terms of philosophical causes? <laughs> right, not not many. Um, so, of course, Linda, Lincoln's Lincoln's law partner Billy Herndon, you know noted that Lincoln had a penchant for thinking in these terms, so really tracing things to their origin, the first cause or first principle, is when he said the, the principles of Jefferson are the definitions and axioms of a free society, kind of applying Euclid uh, as the starting point for any further reflection on self-government. So this is our philosophical cause. Um, that's important as we consider the American regime and we consider whether or not slavery was our philosophical cause or white supremacy was our philosophical cause, uh, as Stevens would very explicitly contend. So we have a question. I'm sorry, were you, were you finished, Joe? Yes. Sorry. Okay. Uh, we have a question from Richard Rago. Uh, he notes that Lincoln's speech on February 11th, 1861 in Indianapolis, he puts forth, quote, the assumed right of a state that the Constitution should rule all that is less than itself and ruin all that is bigger than itself. Is that not a reference to the elephant in the room? Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I think it anticipates what he... What he says in the first inaugural about about uh, what he's going to say in the first inaugural about secession, right? That is that the principle of majority rule means a minority cannot uh, overcome a lawful majority, um, and that secession is the very principle of anarchy, and the Constitution is the fundamental rule of law. Does not have a self-destruct button in which one member can or a few members can just exit. There's no lawful right to secession. That's very nicely stated there in, in Indian Ave. I wish you would have maybe even used that same language in the first inaugural. Why don't you read that again? That's 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 classic Lincoln in terms of his logical thinking. David, Susan, anything you care to add to that? Oh, you're muted, Susan. I'm on mute. I'm not good at this. Um, so I... I... I wanted to pick up on on what David had said and and just reiterate. I think it is um, it is important to go back to that first paragraph um, and and realize what he's talking about when he says all this. 
referential pronoun that we don't really have the reference <laughs> for up above, right? All this is not the result of accident. It has a philosophical cause. Without the Constitution and the Union, we could not have attained the results. But even these are not the primary cause of our great prosperity. There is something back of these entwining itself more closely about the human heart. That something is the principle of liberty to all. The principle that clears the path for all, gives hope to all, and by consequence, enterprise and industri- industry to all. Um, so by the, the, the final phrase, enterprise and industry to all, you can go back and understand what the referent probably is, which, you know, as David said, is, is American prosperity. Um, what Lincoln refers to very frequently as the happy teeming millions, right? Um, that we have a, a growing population, 35% uh, population growth, um, and, um, and the, and the prosperity, um, as well. So it's both population growth and, and commercial growth. Um, what gives enterprise and industry to all that results in prosperity? And then he tracks it back. Um, so I, I think that's that's a very good point since the fragment begins with the missing <laughs> the missing referent. Um, and I think that's important to, to sort of bring that forward. Um, but it is wonderful, right? This is to see Lincoln in action here saying, you love American prosperity, right? But tracks it back um, to this something back of these that's also somehow a, a, a very Lincolnian um, phraseology there back of these um, and that back of these um, something entwines itself more closely about the human heart um, the principle of quote liberty for all and this is this is what I find most fascinating about um, this fragment um, as someone who's uh, pretty obsessed with the Gettysburg Address. Um, So the Gettysburg Address also really hangs on the reference to the Declaration of Independence. Um, um, It sort of grammatically hangs on the Declaration of Independence. It all flows from a, a reference backward to that document, those words, that nation founded on those principles. Um, and yet when, when Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address references the Declaration of Independence, the quote phrase, and he doesn't put it in quotation marks in the Gettysburg Address, well, um, we only have after copies, um, but um, is the phrase, all men are created equal. Um, whereas here, when he refers to the Declaration as the apple of gold, and the Constitution as the frame of silver, um, the phrase that he puts in quotation marks um, as the principle embedded in the Declaration of Independence is is not actually a direct quotation from um, the the Declaration in the way that... um, all men are created equal as a direct quotation from the declaration. Um, but instead the principle that he, he lands on is quote, liberty for all. Um, and that's, um, it's a very interesting switch, um, to, to take note of. Um, and I think that that, um, 
real having this fragment um makes us read the Gettysburg address somewhat differently um in it doesn't um it, it sort of detracts from i think a Gary Wills understanding of the Gettysburg address as being a kind of um attempt to switch out um the founding principle um from liberty to equality um and i think you know david spoke very clearly about lincoln's awareness of um, the dangers in, um, in the, the equality principle without the rule of law. Um, and of course, um, Lincoln is writing post, um, Karl Marx communist, um, manifesto, um, and the 1848, um, revolutions. Um, and so the, the dangers of, you know, what can happen in, in a, a revolution that emphasizes equality without the rule of law, you know, we could have seen it in the French Revolution, um, but it becomes even more evident <laughs> later in the 19th century. Um, and and so here, you know, we see Lincoln balancing um, the the equality principle with the liberty principle, um, and and I think that's very crucial for for Lincoln's thought and Lincoln's patriotism. Yeah, is there any evidence that Lincoln was familiar with Marx? Um. So. Marx was writing for the New York Times. I mean, yeah, he was. He was writing for the New York Times. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, M- Marx's journalism is ubiquitous in the 19th century. You know, we, you know, I, I, ref- I, fre- I referenced just the one big text, right? The, the sort of 1848, Carl, you know, Co- Communist Manifesto. Um, but his ideas are, are pretty pretty ubiquitous, um, as, as a journalist. So, I mean, I think Lincoln's familiar with Tocqueville, although he doesn't, I don't think anywhere reference him directly. Um, Lincoln is obviously familiar with Harry Beecher Stowe's writing, even though he doesn't quote her reference her directly in any, you know, writings. Um, and so I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, I feel like it's safe to say he, he knew about, you know, it, at least the socialist ideas that were, um, that were everywhere in the 40s. The Southerners were espousing. That Fitzhugh was espousing. No, I, I just want to add that, you know, look, I, I um Lincoln's understanding of of liberty, right, as uh involving freedom to pursue human flourishing, right, without artificial Im- impediments. And and in, in other words, the metaphor of a clear path, the race and life. Okay, presumes a fundamental equality. Presumes equality, right? Uh, how could you be? How could you be free to pursue? Uh, for all is right, and for all implication a reference to equality. Right, that's a good point too. And 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 for all, and and he does say, you know, in several places, the theory of our government is universal freedom for all. So. Um, it's you know two core principles of the Declaration: equality, liberty, the pursuit of happiness are all I think presumed uh, in this in this document. I, I would say also I think it's from a historical point of view it's important to remember that Lincoln would not have had to um, you know I, I understand the interest in gee did he did he read Marx but you know the abolitionists were part of a very broad movement that was. Um, 
it, um, I, I wouldn't say contemptuous of the law, but indifferent to it. And this manifested itself in the in in um, antebellum America in a variety of ways. You know, um, uh, in millennial religion and in and all sorts of radical. Um, and by radical, I I mean a, a willingness to rethink every aspect of of human life with a view often inspired by Christianity uh, towards a radical human equality. And that was evident in America, you know, apart from any um, formulations by um, Marx or economists or, you know, socialists and so forth. It's uh, something I think we tend, we tend to forget, but it's, I think Lincoln was very much aware of that. We, we know of the abolitionists obviously, but, they were part of a of a very broad movement, which uh, I'm I'm sure Lincoln understood in in detail. The, that collective element of of the Brook the Brook Farm experiment. Yeah, and and I'm not I'm not saying I, I I you know I'm not passing judgment on them except to say that there was this you know this spirit of lawlessness that Lincoln speaks of had many different kinds of manifestations. And they were problematic, I think, from the viewpoint of uh, Lincoln. But I think from from other people and looking back on it, you can see uh, a, a kind of problematic character to it. Um, you know, riots for all sorts of re- reasons occurring in, you know, uh, the 1830s, for example, is supposed to be the decade with the most riots in American history. I mean, there are a lot of contenders for that title, but um some historians believe it's 1830s, and that all of that again, you know, that, that's reflected in the Lyceum speech. But it's it manifest it, the causes of it are um, it's it's not just slavery that's at issue there. There's anti um, various you know anti-Catholic movements and and all sorts of things going on. David Weidenhofer asks: Since the date of the fragment is somewhat unclear. Uh, is it possible that it could have been a response to the Cornerstone speech? Hmm. Yeah, we've been getting some very interesting um, questions out there. Um, somebody somebody uh, mentioned, um, this was Austin Valentine, I, um, that Marx wrote a letter or two to Lincoln. Um, said he can't remember the dates, but he stumbled on these before. I, th- I think that's fascinating. And then, and then the, the reference um, from Scott Hurst to the, to Robert Owen and um, his socialist theories. Um. Yeah. I, I would think if it were meant to be a response to the cornerstone speech, it, it would have had to raise the question of equality more directly. Yeah. That, that reference to, you know, seizing upon proverbs, right. The, the metaphor from Proverbs, a word fitly spoken, makes me think that, and then the relationship with Stevens and Stevens' uh, position, you know, uh, against George's secession, makes me think that there's there's good reason. It's a good good candidate to to think it's in response to Stevens' uh, letter to Lincoln. Very good reason. But it's plausible. It could be I, mother time. I find I find also the um, the reference. There is something back of these entwining itself more closely about the human heart 
to me that that sounds like the mystic chords of memory um yeah, yeah. reference in the in the first inaugural so to me it it i mean Lincoln, I think, is a very consistent thinker from the beginning of his public career to the end. So it's it's not easy to date things just on resonances um, to other works um, because you can find those across. But I do think that um, that Lincoln's effort here to appeal beyond economic self-interest, yeah. right, beyond the question of prosperity and, you know, whether, you know, Slavery is essential to Southern prosperity to, to try to appeal behind, um, behind economic self-interest to a more principled patriotism um, resonates with the end of the, the first inaugural address in, in March of 1861, the mystic chords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the union when again touched as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. Um, that extraordinary image, right, of the country as a kind of harp um, with chords, you know, stretching, I know it's this, I mean, to, to the Patriot graves um, and that, um, that, that we have to go back, go, go into our past, um, to the Patriot graves and to the, to the principles of the, of the American revolution, Th those two resonate with each other. Um, and so it's possible that he's exploring ways of, um, of appealing to something beyond economic self-interest. Dave, I, th I think when he, when he says, um, uh, uh, you've mentioned several times that more closely, uh, twining itself more closely about the human heart. I I've always, thought of that as Lincoln's um, understanding that there's a, that of the deep longing people have for justice, th those who have historically suffered injustice, which means, you know, the, the people, the mass of people who made up the American population would have been historically the people who would have suffered most from various kinds of injustice. And Lincoln, in effect, saying the American Republic for the first time in human history, uh, presents the possibility of satisfying that deep longing in the human heart for justice. Uh, you know, that that I'm, I'm sure somebody here can quote it. Uh, Susan, probably, she's very good at quoting verbatim from, but, you know, that, that what's the passage from the Old Testament about, you know, you sit under your fig tree and nobody molests you. Uh, Washington quotes that in the letter to the Hebrew congregation. That's another example of that. And that people like Lincoln or people like Washington, um, although I, I have to say, I, I, I think there's some reason to believe Jefferson actually wrote that letter. But sorry, sorry. Um, there, uh, that people like Washington and, and Lincoln could understand that longing and take it seriously and work for it is a really remarkable thing. And and uh, I, I I really like the fact that you keep coming back to that twining around the human heart because that's I think I really think that's what that's pointing to this yeah. deep longing for justice. Jefferson may have written that letter, but Washington uses the my own vine and fig tree all yes. over the place in his letters, and and there, yeah. I think there's reference to it in his favorite play in in Joseph Addison's Cato. Um, so yeah, that's a I, I I like that that connection of the imagery. That's fantastic. And to your point, to both your points, 
uh, Susan and David, that the union appeals not only to the head as a philosophical cause, but also to the heart is the principle that entwines itself. I want to point out one thing, Dave, in your in your head note here, you quote part of Stephen's letter where he says what Lincoln could do to save our common country. That's you know the question um, Stephen's apparently asked. And Lincoln then ruminates upon the philosophical cause or the basis of the union. And then we but we get a clearer uh even even a reiteration or confirmation of what he means by the apple of gold and picture of silver in the February 26 1861 speech at Independence Hall where he says it remarkably talks about the sentiment embodied in the declaration of independence that gives liberty not alone to the people of this country but to the world for future time that that seems very resonant with with this earlier with the fragment speech. It was this which gave promise that in due time the weights would be lifted from the shoulders of men. This is the sentiment embodied in the Declaration of Independence. Sounds, sounds similar, right, to what he said in the fragment. But then he says this, now my friends, can this country be saved upon that basis? Okay, and, and it says if, he, if it cannot, he would rather be assassinated on the spot than surrender it. So this is, this is, Lincoln telling us on really the what is the basis our union is grounded upon, right? This is the basis of the union, and the country needs to be saved upon this basis. Uh, and that means there's clear moral ends or moral principles. Aquinas always says you could consider the principle from the standpoint of an end or from the standpoint of a beginning. Uh, and I think Lincoln does this as, as, as well. Um, depending on the process of practical reasoning, uh, so uh, just just remarkable, and I think it's it's important for for teachers when we when we talk about Lincoln and we talk about the Union that we incorporate this, we incorporate this loftier vision of the Union, notwithstanding you know our our, our failure to live up to as Susan said the the aspirational principle and to what Dave nicely described as this the the American dream and the, the the enjoying the fruits of one's labor and and having freedom to improve oneself and one's one's material condition and to be to enjoy peace under one's own fig tree without being molested or disturbed by by anyone or human resources. Oh, that, that's the sorry. This this sort of gets me to uh, our final question. Um, we have an audience that is presumably made up primarily of teachers. Uh, give us your pitch for why they should be exposing their students to this fragment. I'll go first. I just mentioned this is this this gives us a a profound revelation of what the union meant to Lincoln and the basis upon which it should be saved. This is what we are fighting for. Uh, it's short. You know, the, the the Peoria Address is a remarkable document that, you know, you, you could get lost, but you can get lost in it easily. Uh, whereas this, I think, raises uh, a, a lots of very important points in a, in a, a, a brief uh, space. Yeah, I, I would say it's visual. Um, it's a visual 
right? Mm. If you're looking for a, a visual icon th- through which you can, right, there you go. It's a visual, right? Um, through which you can discuss the complex issues of is Lincoln trying to save the union or is Lincoln trying, you know, to, to deal with the issue of slavery? Um, this is, it's a visual that immediately opens up that, that discussion, that conversation for students. Yeah, that's good. Great. And, and I got to give an extra thanks to Dave for helping, helping this be the cover. It's great. We got that. I hope someone knows what it means as they purchase this book. <laughs> well, we well, have a little I'm, note on the inside of the book that points people to the past, to the fragment we're talking about today and explaining the cover. So, well, I'd like to uh, to give a big thanks to all of our panelists, Susan and David and Joe, uh, as well as those of you joining us uh, tonight for uh, thank you for the questions. As a reminder, you.